Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to preach to your people about the nature and the expression of your love as it is given to we, your people. I thank you for the clear testimony of this from your word as we consider so many segments of society that have now been taken into the church that are discarded by the secular or pagan society that are embraced by you. They are not treated as second-class citizens, neither by you nor by your people. I thank you that you love those that the world discards, that you take in the outcasts and the orphans. And I thank you that I get to reveal these things to your people, and I pray that we would hold this testimony with us, knowing that all of us are outcasts, or were, before you invited us in to your eternal family by the blood of your Son. We pray that the Spirit would give us grace as we consider these things. We praise you and thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week we resumed our study through the book of Acts and we examined Saul post-conversion but pre-inclusion into the visible church, the nexus of which was still in Jerusalem. And so he traveled there. They weren't quite ready to receive him. He attempted, it would appear multiple times from the text, to enter in to their presence and their fellowship and was denied and, and ultimately Barnabas took him by the hand and brought him in. But by the end of the text last week, we had resolved the whole issue and that resolution or the epilogue, if you like, was in verse 31 of Acts chapter 9. But what functioned as the epilogue for Saul's story last week functions as the prologue for yet another iteration of Peter's story. He re-enters the narrative here, and he will uh, take the center stage, so to speak, for the next few chapters. Luke is going to transition back into the churches led by Peter. And that epilogue slash prologue in verse 31 is once again, and by way of reminder, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. Now, there is an ebb and a flow to church life. 
that I'm sure you have discerned by now. One day there is suffering, the next day there is joy. Next day there's persecution, conflict, and consternation, and then the following day, reprieve. Sometimes these things all happen in the same day. But the more that you experience the highs and then the lows, and especially the lows, the more you learn, hopefully, to be very grateful for the goodness of God in times of blessing. And hopefully you learn to be very much present in those times. Because soon enough, the God who is always good is going to steer you into circumstances that are for your good, but that are not themselves recognized as good. But though that may sound like a kind of an ominous and foreboding introduction, given where the text is taking us, it's not. Today is, in fact, a special account of the sweet grace of God, who is to quote from the yet-to-be-read, verse 31, continuous deeds of kindness and charity are going to be demonstrated through one of his dear sons and then through one of his dear daughters who is marked by the same nature as he. In fact, I borrowed that description from her, what was said of her as she reflects his nature. So pick up in verse 32, and we're going to discover these things together. We will attempt here to balance the exegesis and application as we go in a manner that I trust will be prudent. Uh, There are really two movements in this text, and verses 32 through 35 constitute the first of these, and so that is where we will begin, and as we go through here, I'll briefly break at times to give you some relevant historical context. Picking up again in verse 32, now as Peter was traveling through all those regions, so the idea here is that Peter, as the leader of the church, has essentially an itinerant ministry. He is going around. He is instructing in a manner that is consistent with the needs of whatever group he's speaking to at the time and shoring up the church as is necessary. And continuing on, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years for he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately he got up and all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Now, the first issue here that I want to raise is that both of these accounts, this one and the following, involve people who are already Christians. Now, often we see in the New Testament the miracles of God being performed to validate the ministry of Christ to the elect so that by that validation they may become the redeemed of Christ, but that is not the case here. Here, you may say, this is simply Jesus loving on his bride. Next, understand that in this account, and the one that comes after, you have what is, by any rational standard, a megachurch pastor ministering on a very intimate level to individuals. And herein lies part of the answer to the question, how big is too big when it comes to churches? You may think my position might be different than what it is, given the fact that I pastor such a small church, but in reality, if people like Aeneas are still being ministered to, you're not too big. I suppose when you get to the point when you can no longer leave the 99 to pursue the one, at that point you either need less people and so you need to start multiple churches or at least you need better infrastructure so that you can care for them. But here is the proof that megachurch pastors can actually still be real pastors even though most of the time. That does not work out to be that way, does it? 
But in the case of Ananias in particular, Peter's qualities as a shepherd are even more clear. Because here you have an individual who is dear to Jesus, but who is certainly not an industrious church member. What tangible ways is he contributing? Therefore, what material interest does Peter have in ministering to this person? He is not contributing to the machine. I'm thinking naturally, as I have already begun to do, which is really carnally in representing that perspective, Peter has nothing to gain from ministering to this man. Aeneas in particular oversees nothing in the church. He can't walk, so he probably can't run ministries. And so the corporatists pretending to be Christians would hardly deign to condescend to such a one. Why would they? But because Peter is not a corporatist masquerading as a Christian, he understands that one bought by the blood cannot condescend to another who was also bought by the blood because if you've been bought by the blood, you're not better than anybody else. You're not higher than anyone else. So how can you condescend to another? Peter's position is unique in the church, but the first pope, so-called, is actually just Aeneas' fellow servant. He is nothing more. Well, we should also recognize that not thinking carnally, odds are probably pretty good that Aeneas, in fact, has one of the most fruitful ministries in the Jerusalem church. Because it seems to me, and this is an inference, but a reasonable one, I believe, that because A, he is a saint, going back to verse 32, he went to the saints, and B, he is also a paralytic who cannot move under his own power, that Aeneas would probably excel in one specific and critical area of the Christian life far beyond what any normal Christian would who had normal physical facility. And what would that specific and critical area be, do you think? One of the primary responsibilities of the Christian life, prayer. Surely the saint that lies on his back with no one to talk to for the majority of his day because they're all out working and attending to the other needs of their lives, Surely this person would quite naturally spend much time talking to God. And so I ask you, is prayer powerful? Or is the power of prayer just a trope? Is it a platitude? Does prayer move people and circumstances? I understand that God is sovereign. I'm speaking here from a human perspective. Or is prayer simply, as they say, a coping mechanism for anxious people? Because if prayer is powerful as we believe it to be, then so are people like Aeneas. And so the irony of this man's situation and others like him as well is that while their legs cannot carry them to the restroom without assistance, their prayers can bring the very power of heaven to bear upon the earth. And this is another reason why the church is always to honor, as Peter has, the aged or disabled among us. They are never to be out of sight and therefore out of mind. Whatever criteria we use to, to determine how we divvy up our time from one person to the next, these saints must not become afterthoughts. If you minister to one over another because of some practical consideration, fine. And of course we all do. You know, in our day, every church is a commuter church, really. So maybe you have a member here who's a couple miles down the road from you. You would be more inclined naturally to meet with them over somebody who is further that's fine natural friendships within the congregation they are also fine i'm talking about cliques but some people get along better with other people that's a sweet thing actually 
a David and Jonathan kind of an arrangement. Jesus was closer to some disciples than others, and that's reflected in the order in which their names are given. Maybe you also have a uh, divinely inspired supernatural burden for a particular person or a group. Paul did. We all do because of what the Lord has brought us through. Our hearts bend more naturally towards certain kinds of people. But while there are a host of practical and even spiritual concerns that may motivate loving service that prioritizes one over another, under no circumstances can people like Aeneas get lost in the hustle and bustle of church life. To greater degree, we will need to get uh, and go out of our way to meet these people where they are. But we must go as far out of our way as is necessary. People that are bound to a bed are not of lesser stock than the ones that are preaching in the pulpit. Satan esteems worth in a merely utilitarian way. Christ does not. And as already acknowledged, because ours is a praying faith, it is not as though they contribute nothing anyways. But further, it is very good for the soul to care for those who cannot care for themselves. I actually wish this church had more people who were in this state in it because it's a great and wonderful sanctifying influence because in this dynamic between the person who is effectively an invalid and the church that cares for them, do you not have on display one of the most foundational premises of the gospel? Those who cannot help themselves being helped by those who have the ability as a matter of pure grace. I was raised Christmas caroling in nursing homes. If anything, we should have done that sort of thing more often. I can tell you those people would wheel themselves or they would have one of the wards wheel them to their entrances. They would wait there eagerly. It meant everything to them that the church had not forgotten them. And by the way, in this age, caring for these sorts of people in sincerity also affords we Christians a special opportunity to draw a stark and beautiful contrast between us and the world. You might say this is another way that we can be an aroma of life amidst the stench of death. And to be more specific here, have you ever heard of the term ableist? This is thrown around often. It's one of the newer and hipper ways to divide people and make us hate each other more. But on its face, and without all the semantic overload that is dumped upon it, this refers to discrimination against the disabled and not discriminating against them. People like Aeneas so in theory, it sounds good, but in reality, it's not good, as is the case with everything as it is practiced by this satanic society. I'll give you an example here from recent pop culture of what I mean. Uh, there was a particular pop singer who got herself into trouble because she used the term spaz, I guess, in a song. I don't listen to any of her music, but I do remember hearing the story. And spaz is supposedly short for spastic, as in spastic paralysis, although I can't imagine that she was actually thinking about that. And so it was said that this is a slur against the disabled. And the irony was that the song itself was riddled with actual slurs and vile language, but all of those things were overlooked and this was zeroed in on. What's interesting, though, is that this particular pop singer would voice open support for committing genocide of those with Down syndrome before they ever get to exit the womb. No doubt she and certainly her political allies support euthanizing the infirmed or the downtrodden as is happening in Canada and multiple states in the U.S. already. 
Christ, on the other hand, really does love these people. And so do we. And the world will see this and it will very often lead them to Jesus as it did during the ministry of Jesus. As people were cast aside, they were outside the gates, they were begging for change as a way to merely subsist. And it was the Lord who elevated them, the Lord who loved them. We as Christians like Him, we're not hiding behind our fangs, meaningless niceties. We are actually willing and ready to care for them and to carry them as David carried Mephibosheth. Now, at this point, I'd like to say something to you about evangelism. And to this you might say, but I thought that according to you, we were talking about ministering to saints. Yes, that is true. But according to Jesus, the way that we minister to our fellow saints ends up being very much evangelistic, as it is inevitably observed by unbelievers. John thirteen thirty-five. by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so the apologetic of love each other, and by this the world will know that you are my disciples, only becomes all the more effective as the world becomes all the less loving. It's similar to the uh, room that becomes darker. If you pull a light into that, it's much more effective. And this society is as loveless as it has ever been in my lifetime or I think yours. And one of the ways that you can tell all the false religions from the only true one is that one way or another, they all esteem people based upon utility. And utility within a political paradigm, which is ultimately what all religions are. They are political in nature. They are trying to gain to amass and to exercise power. Now, Islam and Mormonism give, for example, everything to men in eternity. All the promises are made to men, and much of this life they receive the primary benefit. Why is that? Why is that? Well, at the same time, they render women the eternal servants and really slaves of those same men. Well, because men have power in this life, more than women. And that power can be used to advance that religion. Therefore, men get all the incentives, and women become the incentives. In our day, in the prevailing pagan religion, everything is about the marginalized, or at least we are told that it is. And the marginalized, they need help. But as the government has helped the marginalized over the course of multiple generations now, they have only become poorer, their communities have become less safe, and their families have continued to become less intact. While the government, on the other hand, they're doing better and better every day, aren't they? They have become much more powerful by locking down their votes with unfulfilled promises and simultaneously garnering votes from other demographics by appealing to their sense of self-righteous saviorism. So the pattern then holds true. In all false religions, the useful are used while the liabilities are abused and discarded. Christianity is the only religion actually lining up to take these people in because Christ is the only Savior that truly loves them not for what they have to offer him. Because invalids don't have anything to offer him, especially invalids apart from Christ. And we are all invalids spiritually. But rather, he is loving them through what he is offering to them, which is salvation by grace alone. 
And brother, did this message ever break through in the text? Here is the outcome of Peter's ministry to Aeneas, verse 35. Again, all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Uh, the church must always preach the gospel. We must not think that we can out-Christian Christ by simply being kind enough to unbelievers to sufficiently convey the gospel without words or being kind enough to each other to sufficiently do so. But it is true that if we are simply what God commands us to be in the purview of the world, some of them will inevitably be one in every age. And the Lord did an exceptional work in this circumstance. But in every context, there is simply too much power in Christian love for it to have no spillover effect. And as we continue in the text, we'll continue to observe that effect. Moving on in verse 36 and into the second movement of today's passage. Now in Joppa, or modern-day Tel Aviv, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas, this woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did, and it happened at that time that she fell sick and died, and when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. And we should definitely pause here and consider the nature of this woman's character. When it comes to Aeneas, we were left to draw certain logical deductions, like that he was a man of prayer, but Luke leaves no such ambiguity with this Lady, she is exemplary, and he does not hide that fact. First, consider that which the text makes most obvious. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did, and he gives us actually an example of such behavior in verse 39. When he, Peter, arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with him. A pretty obvious implication here is that Tabitha in Hebrew or Dorcas in Greek made these clothes for others. And so they are holding up the fruit of her loving care for them in an attempt to show Peter this woman's virtue. So that what? So that he can understand their pain at having lost her. What a tremendous blessing she was. What a tremendous blessing has now been taken from them. And again, Tabitha slash Dorcas was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. Consider also the use of the term disciple. Now, mathetes, you may remember from a past sermon on this, and from your own study, is the Greek word for disciple. Mesetria is the feminine form. And while the masculine form occurs everywhere in the New Testament, the latter occurs only here ascribed only to this woman, which is not to say that there weren't other female disciples, but she is singled out by the language. This woman is a special gift of the Lord to all who knew her, and that is why they so mourn her loss now. And let me also say here as an aside, if I may, that to all who claim that Christianity denigrates women on the basis of this passage and so many others, you can repent this woman is not behind a pulpit, but it seems to me that she's broadly considered to be absolutely essential to the church. Her role is not that of a man in Christ's church, but her value certainly is. And so with this understanding, let's continue on. Verse 38, picking up, since Lydda was near Joppa, 
The disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, Do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with him, with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. They are saying, Peter, look here, do you see? Do you see how beloved she was to us? Can you gain some sense of her worth, of her virtue, of our loss and of our pain? Please help us. And so in verse 40, Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa and many believed in the Lord, and Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. So it seems to me at this point in our study that we must understand all of the beneficiaries of this event, who they are, and that we must also rank them from least to greatest. The purpose of this event cannot be understood apart from the result, because the Lord did this to achieve a certain result, and he did indeed succeed in achieving it. So in observation of the outcome, we will understand the purpose. So beneficiary number one, and this is again the person, being, or group that is least benefited by this, and that as I have it anyhow, is Tabitha herself. Now for reasons that I will soon enough articulate, I actually upon my initial consideration of this, concluded very quickly that Tabitha really didn't get benefited at all, that she kind of drew the short stick here. But very soon after that, I realized that that was obviously incorrect. This is indeed a blessing to her as well. First off, long life is always represented in Scripture as a blessing and a sign of God's favor. Children, a couple weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago now, when we went through the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, what was the promise that went along with that? That your days may be long in the land or that your days may be long on the earth. And so that is always a blessing and a sign of God's favor. Second, the Lord is also honoring Tabitha by recognizing in the most miraculous way possible her worth and her value to the church. Tabitha, like Stephen and Saul, is not essential to the church, but she is beloved, and her resurrection is a testament to that. But as to the reason for my knee-jerk conclusion that she was not blessed by this at all, I will let the the Apostle Paul explain, because I'm certain that he does so better than I can. Philippians 1.21 through 26, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Well, of course it would be on a personal level for all of us. I don't care how good your life is. I don't care how blessed of a season you happen to be in. It's not the bosom of the Lord Jesus Yet to remain on in the flesh, he says, is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. I do believe that that is precisely the situation that Tabitha is in because all of us are in that situation. 
And I can't imagine that she would have an attitude contrary to that. I just want to be with Christ. Uh, there is a sense in which a believer can be rescued from death and can consider death to be rescuing in the context of the Christian life. The various different psalmists reflect this reality all the time. David, for example. But in a far greater sense, death brings deliverance because Christ rose from the dead. Death is the deliverance ultimately for us. And Jesus didn't rise from the dead like Tabitha. She was raised by Peter. He was raised by all three persons of the Trinity, including himself. And Tabitha was just that close to being with him face to face and being enveloped in his embrace in a way that mortal minds cannot comprehend. She is at the airport, man. She has walked down the terminal. She has one foot in the plane. But then he who appoints men unto death said, not so fast. Daughter of the Most High, beloved of mine, your departure from mortality is premature. And so while I must acknowledge that while Tabitha has received a kind of blessing, it is certainly the least of all the parties benefited. Let us move on to the next greatest beneficiary, and according to Paul in Philippians 1, who was that again? To remind you in verse 24, yet to remain on, the, on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So it is with her. And so in ascending order, next we have the church. And unlike Tabitha, there's no yes, but, but here's the caveat with this one. There's just a resounding yes. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Consider again their pain at her loss. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room and all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with him. Now here, understand again, if it needs to be said, which I doubt that it does, they're not distressed at the loss of their head seamstress. Where's the lady who used to darn our socks? That's not what's happening. They're holding up for the clothing. They're holding up the clothing rather for Peter in an attempt to try to convey the sense of her merit, which explains their great love for her, which explains the way that they wail at her loss. And by the way, who are the they here primarily? It's not the church in general that's in view, although I am sure all of them are greatly saddened. It is a subset of the church, and they are the widows. And so you have here one of the neediest, most vulnerable groups in the church. And in their day, there is no social welfare program for them provided by Rome. The church is that, as the church should always be that, by the way. The government has no place in that sort of uh, engagement. And Tabitha would seem, of all the people that take care of their material needs and spiritual needs, has invested the most in them. Probably, period. And I want to pause here and note one of the major themes of this afternoon's passage. If it is not the major theme, it is in your bulletin, albeit upside down, but it is in your bulletin. Actually, I wanted to try to convince all of you that you were just suffering some, from some sort of mass dyslexia. It wasn't actually me. But the major theme is God cares for the uncared for. First, you had a disabled man. Nobody cares. 
about disabled people. Even the world in our day that pretends to doesn't at all. That's why they just use them to step on to get to the next thing that they're trying to attain. Now, though, you have a group of widows. And this is somewhat better than policing language so as not to make the groups that you want to genocide feel bad. This is real. And back to Tabitha, there is a critical issue to understand. Tabitha is merely a satellite, which is the absolute best that any of us Christians can ever hope to be. This is our highest objective. It is to receive the nature of God and reflect who He is to others, to the church and to the world. It was God who condescended to comfort the old covenant saints in their sorrow and need. It was Jesus who devoted his most precious time to healing spiritual and physical infirmities. These sorts of people are dear to God, and Tabitha is manifesting this aspect of his character as few do. God has shown a tremendous light into the world through this woman, and so the loss of her is much to lose indeed. And it creates a vacuum of distress. But the Lord meets these widows in their distress as he commands we, his people, to do in James 1.27. And he does this for them by keeping that light lit at least a little while longer. And probably more than that. I should also be said here that by implication, these widows' grief is born of righteousness and not some sort of idolatry of Tabitha. And this is a point that's implied and not explicit, but I do think it is an undeniable implication, given that the church and these ladies are a subset of the church, and they are the primary human beneficiaries. There's no chance that they idolize Tabitha, because if they had, is God in the business of giving idols back? No, he is not. He is in the business of removing them. And the fact that she has not come to be idolized by them probably says more about her character than it does theirs. When people rely on you, and you experience this in ministry all the time, it is very easy for them to make an idol of you. And because we are prideful and sinful, it is very easy at many times for us to receive said worship. God is the provider for us, therefore in large part we worship Him, but we are sinful, so we often transfer that worship to the human intermediaries that we can see that the Almighty is merely using to provide for us. And I have never known of a scenario where this did not occur except when the one doing the good actively trained those who they were helping to acknowledge God as the ultimate source of all things to when you can feel them fixing their gaze upon you in a way that is not right and is not proper and exceeds gratitude for another servant and instead makes that servant a kind of savior to say, nope, train your eyes on Jesus. I know what's happening here. It's not good. And I'm just like you. And if you worship me, you will soon discover that I am not worthy of it. And then your worship will fall and your soul will be harmed as a result of it. Just trust Jesus. Just worship Christ. Tabitha evidently has been very clear and consistent with this with respect to her ministry with these ladies. 
All glory be to God. Now, before we move off of this point, we must, of course, acknowledge that the church is also being blessed in that the spiritual maternity ward is now overflowing. Verse 40 through 43, again, Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa and many believed in the Lord and Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. So God brings death, death brings mourning, but then mourning is replaced with joy as life conquers death and then life begets life which begets life, which begets life. Does that basic formula sound familiar to you? And say, what are the odds that Tabitha's resurrection, though of infinitely less consequence than Christ, was used by Peter in his preaching to them as an illustration of the resurrection of Jesus when he stays many days and he is ministering? I'm thinking that one comes up time and time again. It's not really a super hard sell that Jesus, being God, raised himself, considering that Peter, being a mere man, just raised this woman by the power of God in their presence. And so these things said, I think now we're ready to consider the primary beneficiary of Tabitha's resurrection. And in determining this, I will give a great advantage here to those of you who have been here for a while, because you've may remember or you may not, me raising the Sunday school answers in a normal fundamentalist church. Let's start there. In a fundamentalist church, if you have fallen asleep in Sunday school class and um, you didn't even hear the question that was asked of you, but you suddenly awake only to infer that a question indeed was asked because everyone is staring at you, including the Sunday school teacher, and again, you didn't hear the question. You don't know the context at all. Nine times out of ten, you are saved if only you shout out what? Jesus? <laughs> and she goes, yes. You see, you were paying attention. I, I saw the slobber on your face, and I assumed that you had, in fact, been in a deep sleep, but I can tell that you were there the whole time. What is it in the Reformed circle? And a Reformed Sunday school class, it's not Jesus. might be. It might get you part of the way there. But if you wake up and you feel this intense gaze upon you and you know that a question has been asked but you weren't paying attention nine times out of ten, you're going to be right if you say, All glory to God! Yes, little Jimmy. See, you were paying attention when you weren't because you're rotten. That's what's going on here. God is glorifying himself. True worshipers is what the Father seeks and He is finding them right now by manifesting Himself to them. Am I saying that God is bragging on God? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. People have great difficulty with this and if you encounter this in the world, here's a great lesson for you because you will encounter an objection to God doing all things for His glory. What are you saying? That God's doing this to make Himself look better? Yep. Uh, really not, not as much that. God is doing us to reveal how good he is. Well, why isn't that the same as me making myself look better? Isn't that just selfish? No, it's selfish when you do it. And it's also, more importantly, dishonest. It's a great lie. You are a human being. There are eight billion more like you on this planet. 
ontologically, then you can be no better than anybody else. And spiritually, you can also be no better than anybody else because we are all born into sin. Therefore, for you to say that you are better than anybody else is to lie, to misrepresent yourself. Whereas there is only one being in the universe named Yahweh, and He is infinitely, vastly, beyond you and everything else in His creation. Therefore, when you glorify yourself, it is a lie. When He glorifies Himself, it is a truth. And beyond that, it is an essential truth for people because you are not helped if you do not know Him, and you will not know Him, lest He manifest His presence, and that is what God, glorifying Himself, brings. And that is what He is doing here. And that is first and foremost what He is doing here. And everything else is to be understood as falling beneath that umbrella. And if you have not seen the glory of God here Thus far, if you've not experienced it personally, we invite you to experience it. We do not raise people from the dead here, sadly. But we do see souls raised from the dead all the time. And if you have observed this, you have observed God's greatest miracle, and you are culpable for the observation of it. He has manifested His glory to you, And the God who raises dead sinners to new life does so by the resurrection of His Son, which is what all of us are ultimately trusting in. And we would implore you to turn to the Lord Jesus today as well. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this gift that comes to us from Your Word. The gift of this dear lady's testimony and Aeneas' testimony, which is really just a testimony of how You save and bless sinful people. We thank you for the testimony of your intervention on behalf of these widows who are hurting. We are reminded of the emotion that came from our Lord when he heard of Lazarus' death. When he realized or recognized in real time their very real pain and sought to remedy it, we thank you that you are a God of compassion, that you care for your people. And we bless your name for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Illyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.